get right into it. This text is good, doesn't need my feeble introduction, so we will get right into uh, the text itself. And I see in these eight verses that we're going to look at today, I see two main themes. There's two things going on, broadly speaking. One is Paul's thankfulness for the Romans, and two, his desire to go visit them. So we have the thankfulness there in verse 8, and then the balance of the verses really pertain to his desire to go visit with them. And as I began to, to dive into it, I, I wanted to see, is there, is there a common thread throughout the text that, that might unite those two themes together? And I, and I think there is. And I think it's Paul's heart on display. Paul is opening up, sharing his heart with the Romans. And that's done both in his thanks for them and his desire to visit with them. And I think there's a real affectionate warmth that is present in the text. See, Paul did not plant this church in Rome. He has not been there yet. And so he doesn't know them, and he wants them to get to know him. So what's a, a better way to get to know someone than to open up your heart to them and let them see who you really are. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. And we know him as this intellectual giant. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, the scholar. You know, we know that because we've read through Romans. And if you haven't, I encourage you to keep coming back week after week as we make our way through. And I think that will become abundantly clear to you. And it's going to become abundantly clear to these Roman believers. They just need to keep on reading. But at this point, before he gets all doctrinal and theological, he gets emotional. Not in some kind of syrupy, sappy sort of way, but I, but I think there's a real tenderness in this passage that we see. And I think there's a, a brief application here for us as Paul balances the intellectual side of himself with the emotional side. And we see both throughout the epistles. And I think we would do well to model that sort of equilibrium. That, you know, we wouldn't be just so excitable and full of passion and emotional that we can't put together a coherent thought. Right? If someone would say, you know, I see your passion, I see you're excited, but it doesn't seem like, you know, you're, you're putting together these, these logical progressions to help me understand your, your, your thought. Like, I see you're excited, but I don't have the foggiest clue as to what you're saying. I think that's, that's one end of the spectrum, but then the other end is, is like, well, you're so erudite, because you use words like erudite, and, and you're intellectual, and you're rational, and you got sound arguments, but you just talk like this, and you put people to sleep. And so you're no benefit to them, because your lack of passion has put them out. So Paul, he, he navigates that, 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 uh, that balance like a seesaw very well, I think, throughout the New Testament. So let's look at the text proper. Verse 8 of chapter 1, we're going to see Paul's thankfulness for the Romans. So I want to just walk our way through this, going to reread it, and we'll stop along the way and talk about it. Romans 1.8 says this. First, let's stop right there. Mike, how long is this sermon going to be? I promise, we won't go word by word, okay? We're going to pick up the pace eventually. But he says, first, 
If you notice, he, he doesn't say second, third, fourth, and so on. It's not as though he's given us a list here or some sort of order. He, he's, he's speaking more of preeminence. This is not something that is uh, more, more about sequence as much as it is importance. So what does he want to say? First, I thank. Let's stop there. Now we've got two words, okay? We've increased our productivity by 100% already, all right? He's thankful. He says, I thank. And this is prototypical Paul. This is how he writes. He writes to these epistles to these churches. Almost always he begins with thankfulness. And we see it throughout the, the 13 letters, if you don't count Hebrews. We see him almost always giving thanks for these churches. Let me run through them real quick. You don't have to turn there. I don't know that you'll be able to keep up unless you're really quick. But I just want to show you the, the, the level of thankfulness that Paul has for these churches across the spectrum. He's, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Colossians 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 1 Thessalonians 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians 1, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. 1 Timothy 1, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy 1, I thank God whom I serve. And finally, Philemon, verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. He's always thanking, almost always. There's a few that aren't on the list there. 2 Corinthians, he doesn't, he doesn't thank them because he just starts talking about comfort at the beginning of that letter. And then to Titus, he, he begins on letting Titus know why he left him in Crete. So th those are missing the, the thankful component, but there's one glaring omission to the list. Anybody know which one it is? The churches in Galatia. In Galatians, there's no expression of thankfulness coming from Paul. Sure, he offers grace and peace to them, but he quickly turns with a pretty stiff rebuke in verse 6 because he's ticked. They had turned to a false gospel or a different gospel. And a quick side note here that I, I found this quote from uh, Kevin DeYoung. I thought I'd share it with you. Kevin DeYoung says, Isn't it interesting that Paul even gave thanks for the Corinthians with all their problems? division, sexual immorality, pride, issues regarding the Lord's Supper, chaos in worship, but he doesn't give thanks for the Galatians. There is nothing as deadly and damning as turning to a different gospel. So like Paul's willing to work with all that other garbage in, the Corinth, in Corinth, but with the Galatians, he's like, I'm lighting you up right away. <laughs> and that's what he does in that epistle. But for the most part, Paul is thankful. We saw it. I read it to you. I showed you, okay? And Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So we should be a very thankful group. Question is why? Well, let me answer that by giving you the rhetorical question that he gave to those Corinthians. He asked them, he said, what do you have that you did not receive? 
In other words, what is yours that hasn't been given to you? What, what have you mustered up on your own that you've produced in and of yourself? And the answer really to that is nothing. Because James 1 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do you believe that? Every good gift. Name a gift. It comes down from God. Every one. Every perfect gift. No qualifiers. No exceptions. And that is true from everything from Christ all the way down to coffee. All right? Jesus Christ, he's a gift. Did you know that? We say it at Christmas time, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave us a gift, his beloved son, so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We need to we need to talk about Jesus as the gift in June as much as we do in December. Every day's Christmas. See, we deserve the flames of hell. Pastor Mike said it last weekend. But instead of giving us eternity in hell, God gives us eternal life in Christ. How could we not be the most thankful people on the planet? Do you know what you've been saved from? And so for the Christian, every day is Thanksgiving. That's pretty good life for Christians, right? Every day is Christmas and Thanksgiving. Sounds pretty good. Why wait till November and December? We start in June. Because this good God, the giver of every good gift, he doesn't stop there with Jesus and giving us the gift of salvation in Christ. I said it trickles all the way down to coffee. Did you have a cup of coffee this morning? I did. It was good. It was good. I needed it, right? We pray before meals. Can you thank God for a cup of coffee? Is that absurd? I don't think so. You know, it's good. That's right. You know, I praise God and thank him for coffee beans. He didn't have to provide that. He could say, man, you got to wake up and slug it out on your own. No caffeine for you. It's a good gift. It comes down from God. You know, maybe you're not a coffee drinker. All right, it's, you know, every good gift from Christ to chocolate. Christ to cannolis. I don't know. Pick something. It starts with C to keep with the alliteration. You know, you know how we do around here. Back to Romans 1, though. Paul says, first, I thank my God. And you know what's coming? I got to stop right there. My God. I love that. I do. Paul, Paul uses this in, in, in the New Testament. He speaks of the Lord. He also talks about my Lord. I love the personal language there. We serve a personal God. We're not deists. You know what a deist is? A deist is somebody who believes in God, but they don't believe in a personal God who's intimately involved in his creation. You know, a long time ago, he, he wound up the universe like a clock and then just walked away. And he's, he's aloof and he's detached. He's not involved so you can't really know him, and he, and he certainly doesn't care about you. That's not our God. Our God is personal. Abba, Father. How often do we live like deists when we're Christians? 
about a half dozen times in the Old Testament, we, we hear God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. There, there's a personal possessiveness going on there where we are his and he is ours. That's beautiful. Psalm 23, the Lord is whose shepherd? My shepherd. Is he a shepherd? Yeah, you could say that. The Lord is a shepherd. That's not what the psalmist says. He says, he is my shepherd, personal. Throughout the Old Testament, he's my portion, my rock, my strength, my salvation. Carries into the New Testament. Jesus taught us how to pray. What did he say? He said, pray to the Father. He did, but that's not the language he used. He says, our Father who art in heaven. Like we're his children, because we are. See, when it comes to God, let me encourage you to, to use the possessive adjective, my, more than you currently do. I think it'll help you. I, I think it says something. If I got up here and I said, let me tell you about my Jesus, that, that hits the ear different than let me tell you about Jesus, right? Just, you hear the difference? Yes, he's the Lord, he's our Lord, but he's my Lord. We encourage you in that. And I, I hope you're not somebody who refers to God as the, the man upstairs. All right? I'm not trying to be critical here, but let me just go ahead and be critical. Uh, I mean, when somebody says that, I know what they mean. I know who they're referring to. But I can't help but think something's wrong. Something's wrong. I, I have two kids. If they're in the living room and I'm on the upper level and I make a noise and one of them says to the other, what was that sound? And the other one replies, oh, that's just the man upstairs. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm a man and I'm upstairs, but I'm not the man upstairs. Yo, I'm your father. I'm your daddy. What's, what's with that language? I don't know. Something to think about if, if you mix in a man upstairs every now and then. I think you could lose it. All right, back to, um, back to Romans 1, verse 8. Yes, we're still in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And I'm so tempted to stop there, but we will never get through this if I do. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. It's all through him. For all of you, Romans, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So here we see exactly what Paul is thankful for. It's the Roman people. But not just them, but something specific about them, their faith. Notice he doesn't thank them for their faith. He thanks my God. Why? Because we learned also last week when Pastor Mike told us that faith is a gift from God. So why would he thank them for getting the gift? Why wouldn't you thank the gift giver? And that's exactly what he does. This all fits together. Faith is a gift from God, so it's only right to thank God for the faith of these Romans. And he says that it's being proclaimed in all the world. And I think that's why he uses the word first. This is what gets Paul going. This gets his juices flowing. This is why he was made, for the gospel to go forth to the Gentiles in this Greco-Roman world. He's loving this. And that's why he says, first, this is the first thing I want you to know. And, and it's significant because of what city we're talking about, Rome, very influential, highly visible city, the epicenter back then. 
And they had a positive reputation, these Romans did, because of their faith. Now let me, let me ask you some, I think, interesting questions. I think this raises some interesting questions in terms of the relationship between the church and the world. How should churches be viewed by a watching world? Should we have a good reputation with the world? Should we even care how they perceive us? Good questions. Proverbs 22.1 says this. A good name, read reputation. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. It's better than money. And favor is better than silver or gold. And when I read that word favor, my mind was immediately drawn back to a passage of Scripture we spent five weeks on, Acts chapter 2. And I had this portion of Acts 2 to preach, and the word favor was in there, and I wanted to talk about it, and for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. And look how kind God is that I now get the opportunity a few weeks later. This will sound very familiar to you. Acts 2, verses 46 and 47. Speaking of the early church here. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That favor with all the people. It's not just the church. It's not those. It extended beyond that. They had favor with the, with the outside world. And so I think, generally speaking, the church should be a blessing to their communities. Right? Blessing to their communities and to the watching world. I mean, just, let me just reason with you. Just think about it. The church is what? You know, this, this is the building right here. These walls, we call this the church. I'm going to church. But this is the church. Flesh and blood, you and me. We are the church. The ecclesia, the called out ones of God that gather together to worship the true and living God. And there's a, a calling upon every one of our lives to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. We are called to be displaying those more and more and more. And, and that is one of the reasons I love Pastor Paul. He's always talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Not a day goes by he's not mentioning that. And I need to hear that because sometimes you know, my limbs are kind of bare. And so it's a good reminder. But let me ask you, imagine you're a pagan. You want to hang out with those type of people? Loving, kind, gentle, those, those types of folks? Or do you want to hang with the ones who produce the works of the flesh? Right in that context of Galatians 5. Full of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. I mean, just, of course we would be a blessing if we're acting the way we ought to by demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. You want to be around those people. So I think, you know, and, and those things, the works of the flesh, those shouldn't even be named among us. See, when in faith we are imitators of our loving Father in heaven and pattern our lives after Jesus and by the Spirit display the fruit of the Spirit, that should generate a good rapport with the world. It should. And I think this is important, and the reason I bring it up is I think there's a faulty notion out there. There's a notion out there that the church should be in constant conflict with the world. 
that, you know, we should be fighting button heads, just be at loggerheads all the time because why? Light and darkness don't mix. So the argument goes. Now, I don't think that that's how the church and the world should relate. I don't, but I see why people say that. Let me present a scenario to you. We go downtown, we do an outreach event. We were just down there yesterday morning. I'll take you back to yesterday morning. We're out there, we're giving away uh, things you donate, raincoats, t-shirts, umbrellas, food, and we just have a great time with people, just being loving, generous to our community. This is what we did yesterday morning. All it takes is for somebody to come up to us with a rainbow flag and say, so tell me, what is your church's position on homosexuality? And we, we could give the most loving, humble, careful, gentle, articulate answer, doing what the New Testament says, speak the truth in love. And that response might be, well, you guys are just a bunch of homophobic haters, and they walk off. That, that, that's entirely possible. That could happen. But that's where 2 Timothy 2 and Titus 2 come into play. 2 Timothy 2, let me read this to you. A lot of twos here. 2 Timothy 2 and Titus 2, uh, verses 24 and 25 of 2 Timothy. And the Lord's servant, that's, that's you and me, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And Titus 2 says something very similar. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. They may still speak evil of us, but if our speech is on point, our tone is on point, our character is Christ-like, and we are humble and kind, we give them no fuel for their fire. We don't throw gasoline on an already embittered heart. Bless you. So, you know, and, and there's still some, some Christians that'll say, yeah, you know, my interactions with unbelievers, man, it's always fiery, it's always contentious because I'm being a real Christian. To which I might respond, the reason you're having those types of interactions, it might just be that you're being a real jerk. It needs to be said. That might be the case. That is entirely possible. See, this is, this is very important. This should be important to all of us, but this is very relevant for me. I'm the director of outreach. This, this is where I live. I traffic in this every day, pretty much. And I would like to think that Living Water Community Church does, by God's grace, have a pretty good reputation in this area and beyond, right? I think you can certainly find people that are disenchanted with us. I mean, if you ask around long enough, you're going to find somebody, I'm sure. But they are the exception and not the rule. For the most part, we, are, we have a good relationship with, uh, with the world around us. And I could give you multiple examples. I could, we could go global. We could go local. I want to go extremely local. And, and I say this 
understand the context here. This is not boasting or anything like that. I'm just, this is facts, okay? I'm just telling you what happened and because it fits with what we're talking about here. Very, very local, like within a stone's throw. Over here is, I think, yeah, Bonnie Mead Street, okay? We do our outdoor Saturday night services all last summer. Plan on doing them again this summer. And Pastor Mike had this idea. I can't even take credit. He does my job better than I do. Uh, he said, Mike, let's get some gift cards and let's go to those houses. There's 12 of them. Let's knock on the door and say, hey, you know, Saturday nights, you hear our service, the music, Bongo's annoying voice. Uh, you know, sorry, it's kind of noise pollution. It probably bleeds into your airspace. Hey, we want to give you this gift card here. Uh, thanks for putting up with us. If it ever becomes too much, you know, go to Texas Roadhouse and enjoy a steak on us, you know, something like that. And, and it was great. It was great. It's just a nice interaction. I mean, you're going to think ill of Living Water Community Church? Is, do we do that? I mean, I, I'd like to think not. You know, it's just one small example of just creating goodwill and living at peace with all people. And I said last night, I'll share with you guys, you get rewarded too, the interaction with people. Uh, there's a guy right here. Uh, he's, uh, some of you actually have, have seen this guy on, on the silver screen. He, he's a character actor. Uh, those of you who've been around a minute, remember the Newhart show, Bob Newhart? There was reoccurring characters there. Uh, the guy says, uh, my name's Daryl. It's my brother Larry, my other brother Larry. Remember that? That's Daryl. Daryl lives right there. This guy, he's been in movies like Blade Runner and, and Deadwood and, you know, TV shows like Matlock and Walker, Texas Ranger. Like, he, he gave me his autobiography, having a great, he's got stories. Like, it's great. I, there's, that's the kickback when you, this is, I call the dirty little secret of outreach. When you go out and you pour out yourself, you get filled. You get, there's, there's a kickback. People don't know that until you actually get out there. But hopefully, uh, William, that's his name. I call him Daryl. He, he understands. He goes, I get it all the time. But William, hopefully William speaks well of us. I'd like to think so. By God's grace. Let's turn our attention to uh, the second point of the passage, and that's Paul's desire to visit Rome. We'll begin in verse 9 here. Romans 1, verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul expresses his desire to come to Rome, both here and in verse 13. And I do want to deal with the, the questions, why did he want to go to Rome and what prevented him from getting there but I can't resist to mention here that he uh, says he prayed for them. I, I want to talk about this. The text says that he prayed without ceasing. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. That's what Paul says. Notice the redundancy there. Without ceasing and always. He could have chose one or the other. He says both. He's like, I am praying for you all the time. See, he can't be there with them, so he does the next best thing, and he ministers to them through intercessory prayer to people he's never met. Again, you see the heart of Paul coming through here. And how often do we, as believers, pray for other believers? 
Not even believers on the other side of the globe that you, you've never met. Not, you know, not, 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 not people that, you know, you're not in community with. I'm talking about us right here that we pray for one another. How often do we do that? You know, I received a, uh, a gut punch from the Holy Spirit this week. Uh, got the wind knocked out of me. He did this to me because he loves me. And he wants me to grow. And because I love you and want you to grow, allow me to punch you in the gut. Spiritually speaking, of course. Can't talk about kindness and gentleness and then get all violent, right? But here's, here's the thought that occurred to me this week. Very convicting. You have an email account, right? You get an email each week from one Eleanor Zimmerman, the prayer requests for Living Water Community Church. What do you do with that email? I don't want to tell you what I do with that email, because hence the pain in my midsection here. But what about you? I'll tell you what one woman does. She asks us to print it out, leave it for her to pick up, and she comes in each week each week to pick it up so that she can have a hard copy of it to work through to pray for you and me. And I want to tell you just how good God is. L let, me, let me tell you, God, God is very good. He is good at what he does, if that's not the largest understatement ever. God is good at being God. I wrote that Speaking of this unnamed woman, and my office is right beyond that metal door right there. It's the old sound room here at church. And I, and I, I walked out. I needed to, like, I'm not feeling great. I just got a blow to my midsection. I'm, out of, you know, I'm like, I need to get up and walk around. So I, get, I leave my office, and right outside my office is the welcome table. And on the welcome table is a piece of paper. It's the prayer request, and it has the woman's name on it for her to pick it up. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you her name. I have her permission. Her name is Sherry Har. And I see that. I'm like, oh, wow, look at that. I was, I was just writing about that. What an interesting coincidence. And I walk into the office, just kind of chatting people up, see how they're doing, just again, taking a break. I'm not in the office two seconds, and I hear coming from Pastor Ben's office, him and Grace talking, and I hear Sherry Har was just in a car accident. I'm like, What? So I'm like, well, is she okay? You know, we, we don't know. So I said, Grace, let, let, let's call her. So Grace calls and no answer. And so I text her. I'm like, Sherry, you okay? About a minute later, uh, response comes back. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just a little shaken up by the whole, the whole thing. And I was like, you know, praise the Lord. You know, I mean, cars can be replaced. You, you can't. And uh, I said, you know, besides praying for you, I said, uh, can we do anything else? And it occurred to me, knucklehead, there's the, the prayer request with her name on it. Why don't you offer to at least take that to her? So I text her back before she could reply. I said, hey, could I bring the prayer request to you? And she said, yeah, that, that'd be great. And you know, maybe we could talk a little bit. And I thought to myself, look how good God is. I'm falling short here. She's doing it, right? And, and, and I'm feeling lousy, and now I get a chance to go pray in person for the woman who's praying for all of us. I mean, I was just like, that, that is really, really good. But that's not the end of the story, though. So I text my wife, and I said, uh, hey, Sherry Har was in a, a car accident, and we've known Sherry for like a dozen years. 
And I said, I'm going to go visit her, so I'm going to be a little bit late. And she's like, that's eh, okay. Uh, stop and get some food. She said, food makes everything better, uh, which uh, is true. It's true. And she's, she's a better minister than I am sometimes, too. So, uh, so I, I text Sherry. I said, hey, can I bring you dinner? And she goes, no, it's already taken care of. Another member of Living Water Community Church. So you all need to know this. If you're not plugged into the life of the church, you don't know these things happen. This is how the church ought to function. You know, I mean, it's just, we, I tell you this because I want you to know this, this, is, this is true Christianity here. So I, so I grabbed some frozen, uh, I don't know, hot dogs, you know, nothing fancy meal from the meal ministry. And I thought I'll give it to her and, you know, she can have something to eat over the weekend. So I go over and I sit down and I get the story of the car accident. And I said to Sherry, uh, I told her, you know, uh, I said, I, I explained this. You know, that um, I wasn't going to mention her name, but I was going to say, you know, I'm holding the prayer request. I said, I, I want to mention that you, that you picked us up each week and pray for these people. You know, but I don't say, you know, who you are and everything. And, and you know, I'm asking her why she does it. And, and it's like hard to read on her phone. So she likes the hard copy or whatever. And so, you know, I'm, I'm telling her this. And as I'm telling her this, she starts bawling. I mean, real tears like crying. And I'm like, uh, I can take it out. It's okay. I mean, I don't even say your name. And she's like, no, no, that's not it. She goes, if you did that, Mike, I'd feel like such a hypocrite. She goes, I don't pray for that, that list like I used to. I've fallen off. You know, and she goes, I feel so bad. Eleanor prints it out, and I feel like i got to go get it. And sometimes I don't, I don't do anything with it. And she's feeling lousy. And I said, I said, hold on, Sherry. I said, wait, let's, let's just look at what's going on here. Because I told her, like, I'm not doing it. I think you're doing it. She's like, oh, I'm not really doing it. I'm like, I said, let me share this story with Living Water. I want to say your name. You know, I asked her, I said, we can call you Terry or Carrie, but I'm an idiot. I'll end up saying Sherry anyway. So let's just get it out there. Uh, you know, I said, let, let, let's redeem this. Let's let this be an encouragement that sometimes you think somebody's, they're doing it. They're, oh, they're living the Christian life. Eh, maybe not. Maybe not. And that's not a slight against Sherry. It's just we're all in this struggle together. I mean, prayer is a discipline. Discipline and easy are like oil and water. They don't go together, okay? It's called a discipline for a reason. It's hard. Life gets in the way to pray for you, and it's hard, but we make it easy, don't we? It comes right into your inbox every week. You don't have to go lunch to lunch with people to find out what's going on. We tell you. So, you know, I, I just thought, how amazing was that? You know, I don't do coincidences. I just don't. But the question really comes down to, are we in relationship with one another or not? Are we? And do we believe that the Lord hears and answers prayers? If your answer to that is yes and yes, we need to do better, and I'm going to try to do better. I'm just telling you that. I'm not going to stop ignoring that email. So in the remaining time we have left, uh, let me answer two questions. Why did Paul want to visit Rome, and what prevented him from doing so? Let's deal with that second question first. What, what kept him from, from making the trip? I think we have the answer. It's just we have to go forward in the book of Romans to chapter 15. Let's look at it. Uh, verse 20. Verse 20 and following from Romans 15. I'll let you turn there if you want. 
Paul, he tells these same Romans here. <clears throat> he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Tuck that in the back of your brain for a minute because we're going to come back to that. Not where Christ has already been named. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. It's a citation from the prophet Isaiah. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. See, Paul's busy planning churches in the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. He's busy doing what he does, and that's why he couldn't get to Rome at that point. And he finally does. If you've read the book of Acts, you know he does get there. The last chapter tells us Paul arrives in Rome, but not the way he expected. He goes as a prisoner in chains. Very interesting. There's a sermon in itself right there of how we pray. God answers the prayer, but you're like, that's not, Lord, what I had in mind, okay? Could done without the chains, all right? But notice, now keep your finger in Romans 15. Let's go back to Romans 1. We're going to kind of flip-flop here. Uh, Romans 1, notice what he says there. He says, somehow, li li listen to the language of Paul. Somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. See, we make our petitions known to the Lord, but that's the approach right there. That's the language, if it be your will. I, I, come what may, I'll take, I'll just, I'm, this is what I would like, but, I, but I'm submitting it to your will. And so Paul gets there after being arrested, beaten, slapped in the face, Snake bitten, shipwrecked, the whole nine. So now let's jump back to chapter 15 because if we keep reading, the other question gets answered as well, or at least in part. Chapter 15 of Romans, uh, verse 23. Paul goes on to say here, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I have longed uh, for many years to come to you, he's saying I'm basically done. I, I got my, 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 my job done here and I still want to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So we, we see part of the reason he wants to go to Rome is he wants this to be the jump off for his trip to Spain. And he says there he wants, he wants them to help him get there. So he wants to use this like as a base in Rome after he's spent some time with them. Okay, so that, that's one reason. There is a multitude of reasons of why Paul wants to go to Rome. So we got to go back to Romans 1 for those. Romans 1.11, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wants to impart a spiritual gift. And there's been a lot of ink spilled as to what is this spiritual gift. I love reading these commentators. They, they just debate back and forth. Well, this guy says this, but here's why he's wrong. And then the other guy says this, here's why he's wrong. This is what I think. And then you open up their commentaries and they say, yeah, he thought that, but here's why he's wrong. And it's just like, it's, it's funny, actually, you know. Uh, you're trying to figure out, what does he mean by spiritual gift? Here are a few of the options uh, that you could choose from. Some people think it's one of the spiritual gifts that he's going to go on to enumerate in chapter 12, right? 
I, I don't think it's that. I think I, I, I have reasons for that. I won't go into it. I got three here. Uh, the other one is that he's going to share one of his own uh, apostolic gifts, like teaching. Maybe that's what he means. I'm not convinced of that either. This is just my understanding. I think he means in a general sense. Just a, just, he wants to be a general blessing. That's what he wants to impart to them, the gift, a, a benefit that's just going to help them in general. And, and I arrive at that partly because he says, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. It's like he doesn't really even know. You know, if it was teaching, why didn't he say teaching, you know? So, I don't know. I'm not going to die on that hill. But he wants to give them some sort of gift, let's just say. All right, that's another reason why he wants to go to Rome. Here's yet another. Verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I love the words that is. He says, you know, I want to impart to you this spiritual gift. That is that, that we may both be mutually encouraged. And this is the humility of Paul here. He's not saying like, well, you guys need me, so I'm going to come and provide this gift that's going to benefit you. He's like, well, but, well what I mean by that is we're both going to be benefited, right? Mutual encouragement, a two-way street. Verse 13, another reason. He says, Paul says that he wants to also, he wants to reap some harvest among them. Again, the word some, some harvest. Some translations say fruit. Yet another reason, as we continue through to verse 14, Paul wants to visit Rome because he's under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Basically, he's saying, I, I want to minister to all people to all people, to the, to the elite and the oppressed, to the, to the intellectual as well as the uninformed. And finally, in verse 15, the last reason, he wants to go because he's eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So let me ask you this question. Why does Paul want to preach the gospel in Rome? I mean, I understand the desire to impart some spiritual gift. I understand the desire for mutual encouragement. That makes sense to me. But preach the gospel to them? Aren't they already believers? Right? I mean, he said in verse 8, their faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Bit of hyperbole there. But while your faith did, the world's talking about y'all. Like your faith is, the, the news of your faith is spread. And then we read in chapter 15 that his ambition was to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Christ has been named in Rome. Why? Why does he want to go there and preach the gospel? I think part of the answer is found in our understanding of the Apostle Paul. I think we, we tend to see him merely as an evangelist. Evangelist slash church planner. That he's only concern is to see people come to Christ initially. But if you've read through the epistles, you, you wouldn't come to that conclusion because you see, yes, he's an evangelist. He's about the gospel. He's about introducing people to Jesus Christ. But he is also very much concerned with the church's spiritual growth. He wants to do what Jesus said, which was not go make converts, go make disciples. 
See, we sometimes have this division or separation between evangelism and discipleship. I, I, I don't know that those two ought to be separated or divided. Right? The, the, the preaching the gospel for Paul involves more than just an initial conversion, and then he walks away and says, I hope you get some discipleship at that church over there. That's not how he does. See, that's why, especially in America, here's why this is relevant. I, I like to say to our E3 group, everybody claims to be a Christian. Again, that's hyperbole. Not everybody does. But you, you knock on, you know, there's 12 houses at Bonnie Mead there. If we were to ask them Christian or non, I bet you eight or nine of them are going to say Christian. Are all eight or nine of them Christian? I don't know. I don't know. But we share the gospel to all people. And if somebody came up to witness to me, I'm not going to, well, wait, I'm already a Christian. I'll be like, no, man, let, let's talk about it, man. I want to hear you. I want to hear, you know, how you are going to lay out the gospel to me because I love the gospel and I want to hear it. And I want to, maybe you got some nice illustration or something. I'm not going to shut that down. So the evangelism and the discipleship are intermingled. They go together because Paul, he doesn't want to just merely win converts. He wants to bring about what? We covered it last week, the obedience of faith. See, Try not to take last week's sermon and this week's sermon and they're separate. It's the same. It's right in the same context there. It's just Pastor Mike dealt with the obedience of faith last week, but Paul's still talking about it here. This, is, this all ties together. See, his desire is for the, for the Romans to press on and press into this great faith that God had given them so that, so that they grow up to maturity. And I think that explains the spiritual gift to what? Strengthen them. The mutual encouragement, encouraged by what? Each other's faith. And the fruit or the harvest that he desires to receive from them. Paul is not merely interested in an initial conversion to Christ. He is interested in conformity to the image of Christ. Language he's going to use eight chapters later in Romans 8. That's Paul's intent. And we need to understand that it is by way of the gospel that we get in Christ, but you don't leave the gospel there because it's also by way of the gospel that you grow in Christ. See, we think as a, as a lost person, I, I'm lost in my sins. I'm under the wrath of God. Somebody tells me about Jesus, the wrath remover, through, through repentance and faith, I, 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 I walk through that narrow door. I'm in Christ now, and now I drop the gospel. It served its purpose. I no longer need it. That is not the case. It is not the case at all. See, once you are in Christ, you wake up every single morning, and you preach the gospel to yourself. You say, my sins are forgiven today. They are now and forever. Do I fear the flames of hell today? Nope. Jesus took my hell, right? Am I a slave to sin today? Nope. Because my Jesus has set me free. Am I an orphan today? Nope. Because my God has adopted me into his family. I think nobody loves me. Nope. Because I have my God who loves me and gave his son for me. I think I have nobody to talk to today. Nobody wants to hear about my struggles. Not true. Because I have my God who I can pray to, and I have my Jesus who can sympathize. Nobody's going to pray for me today. That's not true. 
Because I have my church family. And if my church family fails me, my Jesus never fails me. And he always lives to make intercession on my behalf. Maybe my prayers won't get answered in the way I hope. Maybe. Maybe. But he will even use that to work together for your good and his glory. Because Jesus died for me, I can overcome that sin that so easily entangles me. Because he's given me his Holy Spirit as a helper, as the power to overcome it. Can I have joy today? Yep, because I find my joy in him. Can I be strong today? Yep, because the joy of the Lord is my strength. And on and on and on and on it goes. Don't leave the gospel at the door. If you left it there at your conversion, go back, pick it up, because you're going to need it. You're going to need it to live this Christian life. It is the lens by which we view all things. It is. It's the filter we use to understand everything about life and our spiritual growth. It's like, you know, you put on rose-colored glasses, what? Everything looks rosy. We put on gospel glasses or spectacles or the lens, and we view everything through in light of Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes, it is the gospel that gets us into Christ, but it is also the gospel that brings us into maturity in Christ, to bring about the obedience of faith. And that was Paul's desire for the Romans back then, and it's God's desire for you and me today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we can gather and we can open up your word Your word is so rich, Lord. It is so deep. There's so much to pull from. We tend to think, well, we want to get into Romans 1.16 and following all the doctrine, the theology and justification. In Paul bearing his heart here in this passage, there's much for us to glean. There's much for us to absorb and apply into our lives. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the the book of Romans, Lord, that you've preserved all these years that we can open it up and hear your heart. Lord, thank you for the Apostle Paul as he bears his heart to these Roman believers. Lord, help us to apply that which we have looked at here today. That we would be thankful. That we would be appreciative. Ultimately, everything we have comes from you. Lord, we thank you. And we pray that our lives would bring honor and glory to your name. We ask all this in Jesus' holy, righteous, risen name. Amen.